0: Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number six. Today's episode features my conversation with Dana Dillon of Providence College. Dr. Dillon and I had the opportunity to speak this past summer at the College Theology Society's annual convention at the University of Portland, and it was a really great conversation. We talk about the impact that a summer service program had on Dr. Dillon's vocation, about teaching race and theology to undergraduates, And about the theological questions raised by mental illness, a research topic that has sprung out of her own personal experiences, as you'll hear in this episode. Please let us know what you think in the comments on the blog post or on iTunes. And as always, thank you so much for listening. So we're here today for the Daily Theology Podcast with Dana Dillon, who is from Providence College, right? Providence College. And you are an assistant professor? That's Uh, right. Christian ethics, moral theology, uh, like how would you of theology? Theology generally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, although, I mean, moral theology is certain certainly my training.
0: Your main your main focus.
1: Exactly. All right.
0: The first question I like to ask people and and get their take on is kind of like how, how did you get into doing theology? What is it that brought you to do theology or what interested you or
1: So there I guess there are a couple of stories to tell in response to that. The first I would say, I was I was raised Catholic, pretty observant family. But I don't know that I had really come to much personal embrace Mm -hmm. of my faith, per se. But I got involved in a youth group when I was in high school and got into paying attention to my own spirituality in some Mm -hmm. ways at that time, taking my faith pretty seriously. And so that meant meant a couple of things. One was since faith was such a live thing for me at that point, I was really interested in going to a a Catholic college. I was really interested in questions uh, related to faith. And so when I showed up at... Notre Dame as a freshman, I was put into a theology class because mm-hmm. core requirements and all that. Which is automatic. Yeah, it was one of those things that, yeah. you know, they, they encourage you, well, get your core, core requirements out of the way, right? <laughs>
0: Which I'm on a, another end of now, but... Did you did you have a major in mind when you went to college, or? I, I
1: actually was sort of vaguely thinking pre-med, right? Okay. I, I was kind of a smart kid, and people said, well, you're smart, you should be a doctor. <laughs> and um, so and I... now kind, you are. I, I, and now I am, but <laughs> not the kind of doctor they they were they thought they were telling me to be. But right, so, so I also, along the way of freshman year, get handed this little pamphlet. It was called Major Decisions, and it was actually written by Father Jim Birchall, who mm. was my Foundations of Theology teacher, but okay. uh, it wasn't really put together. But... Here's the, the advice that I still remember, and I sometimes share it with students of mine, is this. They said, You know, they tell you to pick a career and to choose a major based on what's going to advance you in that career, and to choose your classes based on what that major requires. And that's exactly the wrong way around to do it. <laughs> Take the classes that interest you, those mm-hmm. will naturally cluster around a major, and they'll lead you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So, against all logic, I actually followed this advice. <laughs> And the uh, heart has reasons that reason knows mm-hmm. nothing of, as you know and and I loved this theology class, mm-hmm. so I took another, and I loved that, and I took another, and I kept taking theology classes, and now I teach them <laughs> 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 but really i that 's what led me into into mm-hmm. theology
0: was it was it anything about those particular classes was it the the teaching was it the content matter, was it the discussion was it I think... Was it the late-night well, conversations with your roommates and friends? I mean,
1: was it-, it, it was it was all those things. But I'll, I'll tell you another key story for me, actually. that So I actually stumbled into something called a summer service project at okay. Notre Dame. And what I mean by stumbled into is I, I actually remember uh, I was just telling this, this story to uh, a friend of mine. I remember... Hearing about some friends of mine, oh, I'm going to do a summer service project. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a really neat idea. You do service, and you have some readings and reflections, and you actually have a follow-up theology class you can take. And uh, I thought, that's really interesting. Like, how do I do that? And they go, oh, the deadline just passed. Hmm. But it just so happened that there was a late edition of another service project, and it happened to be in my hometown. So hmm. I, I seriously got a call that basically said, is it true that you live in Corpus Christi, Texas? Could you could you do this service project and live at home? Hmm. And I was like, Yeah, I could do that. And so I, I got a late addition. Like we talk about you know feeling a call or mm-hmm. something like that. But for so this this class. So you, you you did your service project, and my service project was actually in various components of some uh, pro life ministries and crisis pregnancy centers and mm-hmm. some the that that sort of work. But all these readings on social justice, on ministry, on Catholic social thought, encyclicals and these kinds of things, and then this pretty intensive follow-up three-credit class mm-hmm. on different kinds of ministries and what have you. And for me, it was just, I mean, I also had these like wonderful, mind-blowing theology classes on you know, the, the theology of St. John of the Cross sure. you know, and things like that. But there was something about about that class in particular that, for me, bridged the gap of, like, how do we make a, the world a better place and how is that actually part of what the gospel calls mm-hmm. us to do and our, our rootedness in, you know, in a way, how is our life in this world related to our thought about, you know, the spiritual world mm-hmm. and the spiritual life. And for me, that was just such a living and vibrant set of questions and yeah. it just kept me coming back for more
0: yeah and there's a practical component to it right like absolutely it was like you're doing theology with your hands in that way and
1: absolutely yeah, yeah. With, with with everything in your life it's every every decision matters right?
0: so so did you like did you know fairly early on that you wanted to go on to do graduate work I mean <laughs> a lot of, like a lot of us you know we do theology as undergrad like this is really interesting exciting and then we get out of college it's like oh
1: yeah, now no, <laughs> no. I had a I had a long, slow journey into graduate school. I think I, or I I don't know how long and slow it was, but for me, so after graduation, I actually was looking into post-graduation service opportunities. Mm-hmm. I actually did a program called Channel, which hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Okay. but it was actually um, start. It was a program of the Archdiocese of Seattle. Sort of think you know JVC or something mm-hmm. like that, but localized to to an archdiocese so they were trying in the spirit of Vatican II trying to channel the gifts of the laity okay. into parishes schools, right parishes schools and social service agencies I actually was placed in a parish where I did youth ministry music ministry, and eventually served as the director of faith formation I actually like to say that I pretty much did everything but the sacraments, <laughs> but I did—I actually did a lot of sacramental prep work <laughs> too. So, so and for me, that was this. I mean, among other things, in that in that parish, we had a large undocumented community, mm-hmm. uh, Spanish-speaking community, and uh, I actually, even though I didn't speak great Spanish, I uh, was involved in the Spanish Mass Choir as well, mm-hmm. and got to know some of those folks, and and it was great. And I worked with this pastor. I, I could I could even name him Father Joe Tyson he's actually now Bishop Joe Tyson Uh-oh. of the Diocese of Yakima Washington and he I mean he for me 3 years I worked for him in that parish and he just so consistently challenged me to to expand my vision of church mm-hmm. in and I mean he just insisted all the time that we were here to serve the needs of all the Catholics mm-hmm. we, it doesn't matter what ling- language they speak it doesn't matter what their uh, documentation status is church is bigger than the borders mm-hmm. church is bigger than the boundaries we're here to be church to one, to one another it was really powerful for me he also was really supportive of me as a, as a person who was learning to articulate church teaching for others sure. and, and the importance of not letting my own doubts get in the way of the faith that the church professes, and mm-hmm. there's some interesting things about, about how to carry that. But I'd say throughout that whole time, I felt a lot of affirmation for my gifts as a teacher, because mm-hmm. I was getting to do a lot of that, and also a lot, of gifts, a lot of affirmation for my gifts in pastoral ministry and location in the church. And so I actually, I made a decision after three years in that parish to go back to graduate school, but I actually thought I made a decision to continue in pastoral ministry, because I I made the decision to get my Master of Divinity degree. Okay. So I went back to Notre Dame to get my Master of Divinity degree. And again, I thought that was kind of a decision to yeah. s- to, to serve the church in a more pastoral, last, less academic capacity. And I would say that while I was there, again, I kind of felt these bo- sets of gifts, both <laughs> the pastoral and the... Sure intellectual really really affirmed in me which is of course a a great gift that my classmates my teachers other people gave to me and it 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 really just so happened that I I needed to relocate near my parents Mm -hmm. for personal reasons my my mom was actually very ill she ended Mm. up she actually ended up passing away about six weeks after I finished my master's Mm. degree so sorry I heard that yeah thank you but, in the meantime, because I was relocating to be near her, I committed to teach theology at a Catholic school not far from where my parents lived right i, I had it geographically rather than you know vocationally, although it was not related <laughs> or and, and again, so I thought right yeah. geographically rather than vocationally and in it's that providential. in that setting i really had this sense of myself as teacher begin to develop i i got to teach classes my my load and again it's the the sheer dumb luck of mm-hmm. what they needed i mean i'd always had a certain draw to to moral theology but i what they really needed was somebody to teach a Catholic social thought class to seniors in the fall Mm -hmm. and a Christian morality course to juniors in the spring. Mm -hmm. And so that was my load and I really started, I mean it's really the work that I continue to do in a lot of ways is a moral theology with a lot of teaching in Catholic social thought Mm -hmm. especially. And as I taught and engaged my students with their questions and tried to do some reading and thinking and I really had a sense both that Teaching was really the center of my vocation, mm-hmm. but also that I needed to think about continuing in the, uh, not, not just the high school setting, but continuing as a scholar as well. Okay.
0: And the research and... Exactly. Did you, so, did you at that point have like particular questions that were animating you as far as that goes? Well,
1: or? I mean, I, I think I would say, I mean, so the, in my last semester at Notre Dame, I mean, this is a, the whole, a whole other story in a way, in my last semester at Notre Dame, I ended up in this class taught by Mike Baxter, okay. which I, I think the name of that class uh, officially was something like American Catholic Agonistes. <laughs> right? The this, this sense of the of the conflict between yeah. our... Someone our, had fun making a syllabus. Yeah. Uh, well, and of course, we had a lot of fun uh, referring to that. It was an early morning class, and we, we talked about it as American Catholic Agony. Yeah. Of course. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so so those questions of of church and world and and the sort of loyalty to nation state versus mm-hmm. loyalty to Christ and how we carry those those claims on us mm-hmm. uh, became really interesting to me and so th- of course that led me to read more Howarth and think about studying with Howarth and I eventually did okay. go to Duke and study under howard wrote wrote my dissertation under Wass. good very
0: good so. With this strong interest in both being a teacher and being a scholar, and and, and having to balance those, how, how how do you do that? I guess, or how, how has that worked for you? Or?
1: I was gonna say not very well. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think a lot of us. I, I mean, so I'm, I feel so drawn to my students so much and their questions and what have you, and of course the immediacy of the I don't know lectures that must be prepared and mm-hmm. the, and the papers that must be graded and returned and all those kinds of things often creep up on Mm -hmm. me. And so it's harder to really carve out the time for the scholarship and and the thinking. But you you find little moments (laughs) to to do the work and uh, some... Friends and I used to talk about the importance of trapping yourself into virtue. Right? <laughs> so, so you... <laughs> you tell, st- tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could give you uh, other context. Well, th- th- I, you know, I'll tell you, I actually lived in an, an in intentional Christian community when I was in grad- graduate mm-hmm. school at, at Duke. So it originally comes from that, the ways in which when, when you live your life sharing a house with good people committed to the gospel... It is a way to (laughs) trap yourself into virtue, just by who you've surrounded yourself with. A a friend, uh, one of my housemates, actually said it rather accidentally at one at one point. You know, gosh, living with you people, I'm like trapped into virtue. (laughs) And we're like, you know what? That's actually a good thing. It's like the the fence
0: around the Torah idea, right? Like you don't give yourself the opportunity to to screw up. Exactly.
1: Or of course, as we say, avoid the near occasion of sin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there, but I think there's a way in which you go ahead and commit to the, you know, you submit the paper proposal and then yeah. you, you, you got to show up at that conference and say <laughs> something, right? So, so you, you give yourself some kind of uh, deadline that's mm-hmm. going to matter that kind of traps you into getting the work done mm-hmm. that you need, uh, that's, that's what often works for me.
0: Do you, do you find, I know, so you, you research and work on Catholic social teaching and moral ethics and. That's I, I was, I'm. am guessing the the bulk of the classes you teach are, well. the bulk of the classes you love teaching, or
1: <laughs> so. Well, I mean, it's 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 interesting, you know. So at Providence College, when you teach in the theology department, you actually also automatically teach in the Development of Western Civ program. Okay. So this is this program we have. It's actually a four semester course, and it's team taught by three person combinations com- who come from. Theology, Philosophy, Literature, and History. Departments. Okay. So I, I Is actually... Is it like a great
0: books program? Or? So it's
1: like a great books program. The program's pretty committed to being driven by, by great texts mm-hmm. and by really... It's a, it's a four-credit course and two hours a week are spent by students, uh, spent in seminar with students, right? Okay. So there's there's two big lectures a week and then two hours in seminar, where it's one professor with about 15 or 16 oh, students. wow. So, but then, then the lecture is, is, is one of, I mean, usually one of the three professors takes the lead, mm-hmm. and you have, if you have 16 kids in the sections, right, yeah. then you have six sections, so you have 96 kids okay. in the lecture, right? So... You know, it's it's kind of funny. Sometimes it feels like that kind of draws you out of theology mm-hmm. in some ways that can be distracting. Mm. But a lot of times it feels like this, you know, gift of sort of cross-pollination and things. Mm-hmm. One of one of my fa- so I I teach actually in both the the third semester, which there are three chronological semesters, okay. And then I also teach in the fourth semester, fourth semester, which is a thematically driven colloquium. Okay. So one of my favorite things that we've done in the third semester, which more or less starts with uh, French Revolution 1789 and goes to the present, is that we've actually started thinking a little bit less chronologically lately. And so like last fall, we had the students thinking about freedom, and they were, we actually combined Dostoevsky the, mm-hmm. the cha- out of the Brothers Karamazov the yeah. chapter on mutiny or rebellion okay. which is right before the Grand Inquisitor okay. and then the Grand Inquisitor and we combine that with Mill on liberty oh. and some Gustavo Gutierrez on liberation sure right so we're thinking about freedom and liberation in these three sort of different right, a literary text, a philosophical text and a theological text they're actually from different centuries in some cases but we're trying to get at these questions that cut across these disciplines, cut across time, really. Uh, And so that was a fun thing. And then the other thing that I would say is, so I've been teaching this class now um, a couple of spring semesters. Um, Again, it's in the Development of Western Civilization program, but it's a thematically driven class. I teach it with historian. A colleague Jennifer Aluzzi, Okay. And it's called Race, Marginality and Theologies of Liberation. Huh. So we actually kinda of look at Western civilization, right? The the students come to us having had three semesters of Western Civ. And we really look at how marginality and othering, you know, we look mm-hmm. a lot at the anti Judaism and anti Judaizing sort of at the beginning. Not the maybe not the foundation of Christianity, but soon thereafter. <laughs> And then we look at some of the ways in the colonial period and what have you, again, mm-hmm. this othering of indigenous peoples that Europeans were encountering. And we really demand that they look at this whole story in a different way. Sure. And then, of course, we try, we're we trying to empower them with a, a vision of liberation theology that kind of says it could be
0: different. Yeah. Right. right. So, and you have a role in that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and it's you know it's one of those things you know you watch them go from like, but it's just natural to fear other people. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, right? And and you get to <laughs> encounter, you know, force them to say, you know, theologians have certain reactions when you say it's just natural, natural yeah. right? You know, the, theologians and philosophers, and we and we get at some of those things.
0: I was, I was teaching a class to to deacon candidates mm. on Catholic social teaching. I think it, it last this last fall i was trying to work with this i like, work with racism and sort of systemic injustice and, and these kinds of ideas and one of the students in the class is a he's a phd in psychology and he he kept jumping to you know it, it's uh what, it's outsider bias it's all there's all these terms for it and everything and it's like yeah but right the fact that it happens isn't a justification for it happening right and i struggled mightily to get that across and uh I don't know if I succeeded. That, yeah.
1: that's, that's always part of the challenge. I mean, in this, so when we taught this class a well, so couple of things, you know, students will kind of say, well, it is what it is. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, of course, I, I love kind of, you know, you, you tell them, you know, the first, I don't know, 12 times you hear this, right? <laughs> you know, but that's a way of saying that you accept the structural violence mm-hmm. that is set up, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a choice that we make you accept that as just how it is and must be. Mm-hmm. But it's not true, right? You kind of try to say this. And then finally there's a, this amazing moment where somebody says it is what it is and another student says, well, that's like what Professor Dillon always says. It's not. Or, or sometimes they don't yeah. even cite you, right? They say, I don't think that it necessarily is always that way. Yeah. You know, and they start to raise these questions and you think, maybe, maybe I'm making – a difference yeah. there and making an impact.
0: Do the do the students in this program respond well generally? I mean is it, are they like selected for it or
1: So so every student at Providence College has to take some version of this colloquium oh, okay. class. Oh, that's but, great. But but different professors can propose different mm-hmm. themes, right? So I know there was a course on actually there was a course that was just on evil, <laughs> right? There was a course on beauty. There was a course on the city of New Orleans, hmm. right, which is an interesting way to kind of get at all kinds of you know, microcosm of so much of American life. I know there was actually a course on comedy. Mm-hmm. Right, which is, So, I mean, again, a, a lot of different professors and interests. And you're supposed to engage theology, philosophy, literature, and history, and ideally actually music and art, although mm-hmm. it's hard to do it all. But you also have a lot of freedom with what you're going to do. Now... We actually had, so I taught this class last spring, and then again like a year ago, and again the spring that just just finished. And I really felt, as did my co-teacher, like there was a there was a really palpable impact on our students. And we've actually been kind of trying to reflect on what it is that mm-hmm. that made that happen. And our best guess, I mean, I mean, you never know for sure, right? Sure. But we had this sort of final set of reflections. They had sort of a take-home project, but they had to come in and give a one-minute summary of their key learnings as a result of that. And several of them mentioned this th- an incident that happened on our campus. Oh. Th- there was something drawn on a student's door. the The student was a a student of color, mm-hmm. and I, I don't really want to get into the details of that here. But what what several of our students who white students in our class were more or less reflecting on, was this, that they, in the midst of that incident, they had all these conversations with other white students mm-hmm. about race on the campus. And the tenor of those conversations was usually their friends saying, I don't get why these people think this is such a big yeah. deal, more or less. Yeah. Like, what, I, I don't get it. And our students were kind of put in this position of like, "Well, of course it's a big deal, <laughs> right and they're saying these things, and a couple of them basically realized that eight weeks before they would have been exactly where mm-hmm. their friends were right so so I think there was this moment right where sort of classroom meets real life for them, yeah actually to kind kind of come all the way back to my story about. For me, that was a summer service project yeah. and getting to do theological reflection in that context. But for for them, they suddenly realized how far they had come mm-hmm. by being in this one classroom conversation sort of sustained over time as they were learning and moving. Mm-hmm. But they had this moment where kind of a mirror was held up to their old self through mm-hmm. this through this incident, and they realized how important it was.
0: Yeah, and it seems like a a striking thing in in talking about systemic injustice where on one hand there is something almost intangible about it because you can't just say it's just a series of people's actions and that's all it is there is something that is encouraging and pushing and whatnot but on the other hand it is these precise moments of individual contact where you can kind of break through with students about like this is what this looks like in this context
1: absolutely and i think It's it's funny because I've been more or less, I mean, since since I taught high school theology in Texas in, what, 99 to 2001, I've been teaching about race on some level and Mm -hmm. some, you know, on and off and what have you. And a lot of those conversations, I I mean, I remember very clearly my high school students more or less saying, you know, and of course I was much younger than than (laughs) I am now, but they basically said, you know, we get that racism was sort of like an issue for old people like you, but but our generation. But like, I don't know if you know this, but our generation is pretty much over it. We, we fixed it. Yeah, like we're we're we're, we're over it. <laughs> of course, these people are like 35 now, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but you know, in high school, you think it's a, but but I think that that there's a way in which you know all these. Terrible incidents right Ferguson and baltimore and, and 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 all the all these incidents have just displayed more clearly than a lot of especially the white students that i've taught throughout mm-hmm. my career it's harder for them to ignore the issue yeah. and, and think that it's oh it's only old people like you who are mm-hmm. you know i think I was like twenty eight or thirty <laughs> at the time right yeah. so old <laughs> And so it, it does force a different kind yeah. of engagement. And, of course, when, when it then happens on your campus, right. and, and it's a whole other level. I mean, not that that incident was as bad as Yeah, yeah, others. yeah.
0: You certainly don't wish it, but it becomes a teaching moment. It, it does, yeah. it does. Yeah. Do you find that one, one of the things, I guess, I, I, like I'm taking from especially this story is that there's, there's something very powerful about students recognizing... The kind of rhetoric and language that we use to talk about other groups, about experiences of injustice. So you said, like, then it's like those people, or they, or or that, and that distancing and that, that form of othering. Right. Do you think the teaching, in, in a sense, in rhetoric and in language, is a way of of bringing the the research that you do in Catholic social teaching and in ethics to to the students? Like, is that a way of kind of challenging them, or e- even on that level, there's something where if you can show how language shapes thinking, you can then show how things like this are not natural per se, but are constructed, or and not directly by us, but we receive them and we perpetuate them. and
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's... On one level, I'm completely with you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when you can display to them the biases of their language, right? As I mentioned before their instinct to call things natural Mm -hmm. and you kind of say well here's what's implied by that right you go on with this it it can really help display some of those things on the other hand I'm thinking so for me I think about the ways in which I've been thinking a a lot lately about the ways in which even when I'm teaching things that aren't I don't know directly Catholic social thought Mm -hmm. there are these ways in which the my categories of thought that mm. have been formed by by Catholic social thought. And really, I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm thinking about the intrinsically social nature of the person and mm-hmm. just our, our relationality. And I'm becoming more and more conscious of the ways that I it's, – it's not even how I – what I say to my students, right? In some ways, it's about modeling for them the kind of – respect I mm-hmm. think people have, the kind of connection that mm-hmm. I think people have. And it's it's interesting the ways in which, I mean, there is this, I mean, again, it's tempting to say this natural divide between professors and students, right? right? But <laughs> I, I certainly don't believe that's natural. But there, there, there is, you walk into the classroom and the assumption is mm-hmm. a, a kind of an othering, right? Mm-hmm. And the ways in which, I mean, part of what I try to communicate to them is, although I've done a lot of reading and thinking on the topics that we're talking about, especially with something like racism, Mm -hmm. right? I'm trying to figure it out, too, Mm -hmm. right? To sort of admit your own vulnerability and that you're a fellow traveler on a journey, Mm -hmm. right? And this, in some ways, this is, you know, I mean, this is... Gutierrez would talk about accompaniment, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Or or Pope Francis, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but there's a way in which I am more and more conscious of locating myself on a journey with them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, because you want to give them some confidence. Like, I've covered parts of this terrain before, <laughs> so I can help you, but also I'm here with you.
0: Yeah. Right? It's like telling a student that you don't know the answer. You don't, On one hand, you don't want to seem incompetent, right? Like, <laughs> right. well, then why are we listening to you? But on the other hand, students ask me things, that I just don't know the answer. Sometimes it's a fact. Right. I don't know that fact, but... Sometimes it really is like that's a great insight that I haven't worked through. Like, right, absolutely. Well, and me. of
1: course you can't you can't with the basic facts you you certainly can't claim you know things that you don't because <laughs> they're probably googling it yep. under the table as you speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good reason to ban the smartphone in class. Indeed, uh. indeed.
0: <laughs> who would you say? I mean, you mentioned the bishop that you worked for, or the now bishop that you worked yeah. for. Um, who would you say have been maybe some significant mentors for you? In your in your theological development, your scholarly development, wow. or or also, I mean, if you want to go a different direction, what are maybe like major texts or that you've read that really shaped you?
1: Wow. Okay. So that's that's a great question, but I could talk for way too long. So I, gosh, so uh, I mean, I, I I have to name Stanley Hauerwas, sure. of course. I mean, it was very formative for me, and sort of related to that. And and I remember. Quite well that when when I said I was going to come study with him, he said, "Okay, great. Have you read any MacIntyre?" And I said, "I think maybe in a college class a little bit." He's like, "You have to read After Virtue and Short History of Ethics, sort of cover to cover, and before you get here, more mm-hmm. or less." I mean, After Virtue became this, of course, this seminal text for me. It's okay. it's, it's really shaped a lot of my thing and Mac and other things too, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, who's justice, which rationality, all, all the, a lot of the Macintyre stuff in terms of thinking about, and for me, you know, a lot of that is about, uh, about virtue, but a lot of that is about thinking about the ways that a tradition as a community extended over time, the ways that we're formed, the, I mean, as you were alluding to before, the, the language we speak, right. is, is. Forms us in a, a vision, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that Stanley says all the time is, you can only act in the world you can see, mm. and you only learn to see by learning to speak, mm-hmm. right? to, to name the world that you're in. in. That that was really formative f- for me. I mean, I'm actually going right back to these like dissertation key texts, An- uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Anscombe's intention. Okay, that was that was huge for me in a related related way. But I'm, I'm trying to think that there's. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some Gutierrez. I mean, there's. I'm trying to think about, you know, actually somebody I should should point to since I'm already kind of down this. I already told the story. The class that I took that was a follow up class to the summer service yeah. project was was actually with Don McNeil. He's, okay. the, he's a Holy Cross priest who was the founder of the Center for Social Concerns at at Notre Dame, and just you know his his way of being in the world. And in fact, i I'm, I'm pretty sure that like first time i ever heard of Gu- gustavo gutierrez it was through him right? mm-hmm. he was going away to to live in chile for a while and and you know it was latin american influence and, and things like that some of these things are just so deep in me that i hardly yeah. even know i'm really tempted to go in a in a completely other direction because something of uh, something that i'm thinking about yeah mentor is, is this is not exactly the right word like the right response for this but i'm going to say this anyway so and part of this is because I'm actually trying to work on something on moral theology and mental illness. okay. So I'm thinking a lot about this. Uh, one of the reasons why I have a lot of passion for, for that is I have a brother who lives with uh, schizoaffective disorder. Okay. And one of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been trying to think of through the, some of these things is, I, I mean, this, this is probably one of the most formative relationships in my life. Mm-hmm. Is he a younger brother, he, older brother? He's he's uh, he's younger than I am, and has lived with this illness for more than twenty years. From okay. now. and and actually, he lives with me right now. And and since we lost our parents, I've kind of had care of him. Sure. So, and so I've just done a lot of a lot. Of, uh, he has formed me, right? Mm. The, the the ways I have cared for him. Mm-hmm but also the ways in which who he is in the world and you know the particular forms of, of brokenness that, that mm-hmm. are in his life has really been, f- for me, this sort of constant invitation to a reflection on the sort of universal connection among mm-hmm. us and the, the universal brokenness, the universal need. Mm-hmm. So, so right as I'm thinking about issues in Catholic social thought, right, and the ways in which the needs of another make a, make claims on us, right? Mm-hmm. I have this icon of this in my own mm. life, right? Yeah, yeah. And That's beautiful. And so the, so the ways that, for instance, I mean, my brother is doing very well right now and is, is not homeless, right? Mm-hmm. But my students have, at various points will be talking about, you know, oh, this crazy homeless man approached me and, you know, what should – what should I really do? Dr. Dillon, would you take that guy home with you? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you're tempted to ask, well, well, is he my brother? And, of course, there's a way in which for all of us, right? Sure. If, if he's a complete stranger to us, he's still our brother. Yeah. Right? And, and so... And that's kind of like,
0: like the first response did student mind have. is like, well, everyone's my brother, right? Like, right.
1: And, but how do I... Huh. I actually see that encounter differently... Mm-hmm. because i always do see that it could be my brother mm-hmm. right it's it's that and i it's been my brother mm-hmm. and there well and of course there's another strange gift of this so part of the way my brother and i sometimes live our shared life right is i'll be going somewhere i need to run into a grocery store or a pharmacy or whatever and he says you going in i'm going to stay outside and smoke right mm-hmm. so Whereas for a while, uh, you know, we all have our difficult decisions to make, like do you, do you give cash to this person, right. or, you know, what have you. And when you see them very much in passing, it's it's kind of easy to kind of say, mm-hmm. well, sorry, not today or what have you. But more times than I can count, I've walked out of my CVS or, or uh, Shaw's grocery store <laughs> or whatever it is, and there's my brother. Uh, and usually he's shared a cigarette, which is a particular – valuable commodity in the state of rhode island where we live (laughs) these are very expensive Uh, but he's offered a cigarette to a person they're standing there smoking and you know my brother will will say so dana this is this is sue and uh, she really needs three dollars to to get to uh see her children who are you know whatever And, Mm -hmm. and you kind of all of a sudden you you like i know sue's name I know she's trying to get to her kids uh-huh. and, and and my brother usually says, "I told her you would help her if you could,
0: right? Like, <laughs> she and, really has a face in that moment. Yeah. and so
1: and so I mean, it just puts the question in a whole other way. And so I, I mean again, I think about the ways in which my and this is this is always true of so many of our relationships, right? The relationships that make claims on us actually, Pull us in certain directions, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's into an insulated world away from the poor and vulnerable, or Mm -hmm. in my brother's case, it's actually into a greater contact Mm -hmm. with some aspects of who's poor and vulnerable in our world, and that's it's just a gift. And you know, I mean, again, in a way, it's strange to kind of say, you know, what I think he's one of my mentors, but but I think he is.
0: That's amazing. Do you so and so? This is now like work that you're sort of. Rifling through, or
1: I'm trying, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Do you? And, and obviously, if you don't, it's fine. But do you have a sense, broadly speaking, what you want to say or what you want to ask about that? Or yeah,
1: well, I mean, I you, you
0: said the like the profound interrelationship and the profound brokenness and these kind of twin poles or something of human experience. But
1: yeah, so there, <laughs> there's some different different directions. So, and one of the challenges for me in this in this work is, of course, it's in some ways, it's really deeply related to some work that I've done mm-hmm. professionally. And in some ways, it, it, there's, a, there's just this personal aspect to it. That like, how yeah. much of that do I want to say? But so let me start with the headier stuff, which is, I mean, really the the beginning of this for me. And and actually, I mean, I, I don't know if your listeners are, I'm sure they're Google-type Google people. I actually wrote a blog post on com that's, uh, the title is something very close to St. Augustine and Mental Illness. St. Augustine oh, okay. Catholic Church and Mental Illness, something along that. And there's this moment in Augustine's City of God, which is, is quoted and cited on there, better than I'm going to manage to do it here, where he basically says, he's, he's in the in the midst of talking about the gift that the intellect is, right? Mm-hmm. And I think about this, like in, in our tradition, right, God, I mean, that we're made intellectual is part of the way we're made in the image and likeness of God, mm-hmm. and it's the way that we understand the world. Mm-hmm. It's the way that it, it's it's uh, every uh, the, every act of our will needs to be informed by our our intellect, okay. uh, understanding our sure. ends. Right. So our agency really depends on our, our on our intellect in so many ways. But Augustine says, in the midst of kind of lauding the the gift of the intellect, he suddenly says, you know. When we stop and consider crazy people as they really deserve to be considered, we almost cannot hold back our tears.
0: Hmm.
1: In fact, we cannot right there's this sense hmm. when you understand what it means to have your intellect broken in some of these key ways and and i 'll add uh, that i mean I think w- one of the things there, there are other forms of disability that are in a certain way more consistent. right when okay. you think when you think about somebody who is intellectually impaired in the ways consistent with something like Down syndrome okay. right? there's a, a a difference in their intellect from the normal one, but it's consistent at the level that it is right they okay they grow. whereas for for someone w- who's living with schizophrenia say, there are times when they're in the acute phases of the illness and are just consumed by hallucinations and delusions okay. and they just don't understand reality rightly right there there are too many internal stimuli and they can't quite figure out if this voice is real or if okay. that person is real or, or or what's real about who i am mm-hmm. right but there are also times when they are better medicated and they're more stable and they've had more sleep or you know there are all kinds of factors with this where they're more in touch with who they are mm-hmm. in some real ways and they're they're continue to be some, some cognitive apa- impairments even in those more residual f- phases of the illness. But it can be really different. Mm-hmm. So just, just to tell a personal story, there was a moment, uh, there, there have been several moments in my brother's life where he, he, he's doing his, at his best in, in a lot of ways. And he'll have these moments where he'll, he'll say, man... I'm just realizing that I've lost 10 years of my life to this illness, or mm. 15 years of my, my life. So in other words, right, there's this this moment of just utter clarity yeah.
0: that, right, that you can get, yeah. and, and,
1: there, and and everything in between, right, yeah. of, of knowing something about what you've lost.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's and, and that's, that's very tragic and, and difficult, yeah. I think. But part of what I'm trying to find ways to name are the ways in which not only is there an impairment... Of, so the, the impairments to the intellect can really limit agency and freedom and flourishing, mm-hmm. right, in these sort of categories, but also that inconsistency that's kind of part of the nature of the thing actually demands in a, in a new way that the people who can be claimed by the person in that situation need to stay in relationship with them and it mm-hmm. just to, so part part of like i think it demands about,
0: something different than yeah, yeah I, I mean i think okay. about
1: the ways in which i'm probably the best person in my brother's life to help reminding to to help remind him who he is mm-hmm. through all the ebbs and flows of that of how his intellect functions right mm-hmm. and of course i mean you need to be careful because you can't like Am I the principal agent of his life? I'm not saying that. that (laughs) But but the ways in which... I mean, I think uh, there are some ways... I mean, we've already alluded to this, right? Like, language and communities shape how we understand the Mm -hmm. world, right? We actually shape each other's agency all the time by our conversations about what the good life looks like and and what what counts as flourishing and all these kinds of things. And I'm trying to think through... The ways in which the needs of somebody like my brother with mental illness, in particular, highlight the need for us to help form each other and serve each other in—I don't know—knowing who's who we are and whose we are over time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, does it seem like that question also uh, implicates the, que- uh, w- the question of what is the good life or what does it mean to flourish or? yeah <laughs> yes, okay. well,
1: I, and I mean it's it's interesting because because you can certainly because y- that that question cuts in in a couple of different ways, mm-hmm. right. What does flourishing look like for my brother? Sure, right. but there's also the question of what does flourishing look like for me right right and and I mean, I'm telling stories here, there was a moment in our family history where another brother of mine basically said. I'm not my brother's keeper. Mm. I I can't deal with this. Leave me alone. Sure. And at that point, he was in Texas dealing with our brother. That's our home state. And I was away at graduate school in North Carolina. And not long after that, I was faced with the decision of whether to to wire some money to somebody to put my brother on a bus to North Carolina to me or not. And... I actually realized in that moment actually a couple, couple key things that will connect to moral theology folks. It, so one thing that Hauerwas says all the time, which is sort of a quote of Iris Murdoch, which is, decisions are something you make when ethics has already failed. Mm. I, mm. I always just kind of said, hmm, and never really understood that at first. Yeah. Uh, but I, but it was it was really in this moment that I that I began to understand it because what I realized was I couldn't actually be who I want to be as a person mm-hmm. and say I'm not my brother's keeper, right? Yeah. I actually I mean there's all kinds of pragmatic things that I had to figure out sure. how I was going to make this happen and and, and what it was gonna, and whether it could happen immediately or yeah. what kind of time frame, but there was a way in which it didn't take long for me to realize that I, I couldn't I couldn't say no to that and be a flourishing complete person in my mm-hmm. own mind. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And so and so that's I think that's that's this thing, right? Yeah. That that character and virtue are formed in some ways that when you come to a difficult moral decision I mean there are a few that are really difficult moral decisions that, that we, we end up in these situations with. Sure. But a lot of them we're, we're either just figuring out if we actually have the courage to do what we mm-hmm. know is right, yeah. right? Or how to pragmatically make it happen or how to, maybe how to get other partners and stakeholders in the decision to, to the right place or, or to your – you know, some of these things are complicated. But, you know, it was in that moment, right, that I, that I kind of realized, no, this is exactly it. And I can't – I can't – there's not a version – as, as long as he's in my life and has the kinds of claims that I believe he has on me, I can't flourish and say yeah. no to this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a recognition, it's, it's an epitomization, really, of how flourishing is tied to yeah. human relationality. Yeah,
1: but I mean, it, it's, it's, there's also a larger question, though, right? When you look at the statistics of 25% of, of people in, in the, of the adults in the U.S. have mental health issues. Mm-hmm. like, So there's a claim on all of us. Right? Yeah as church. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a claim on all of us as sisters and brothers.
0: Yeah.
1: It's a it's a hard conversation to have. Yeah. And and because in, in a lot of ways these are invisible disabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And and the the sort of stigma in asking for help is it's really I mean that's part of the problem I, I hope to solve by or I'm not going to solve it, right? <laughs> but but to illuminate. But even yeah. in telling these stories I'm, yeah. uh, I'm hoping to help with that a little bit. Yeah.
0: No, that's that's really wonderful. That's really striking, and that sounds like amazing work. So, <laughs> like, I, get, 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 carve out the time and get it done, <laughs> right? <laughs> do you have any particular tricks that work for you in in getting your work done? Or maybe another way of of doing this is: Do you have advice for sort of you know younger theologians who are coming up and who are
1: I don't. I don't have. I mean, other than trapping yourself into virtue by just making some hard commitments to mm-hmm. to get it done, that that's that's the one that has really worked best for me. I you know I I, I try. I always have the, these great goals of being. You know they say work a little every day and don't be a binge writer. Just and uh, I've never really been great at <laughs> getting disciplined with that. So I just kind of trap trap myself a little bit. Uh, I do try to do some, just identify, I know people who kind of, I'm going to write 500 words a day, or Mm -hmm. I'm going to, and I, when I'm working on a project, I do try to like, let me ask one part of this question, right? Mm -hmm. Let me me chip away at one thing so that I know what I'm working on right now.
0: Yeah. I think if I had actually stuck to 300 words a day since when I said I would do it, I would have volumes out by now I know, right now. I, know.
1: <laughs> I know but the 300 words a day and it seems like it's emails yeah and, yeah. and sometimes blog posts if yeah. you're lucky yeah, um, yeah and not not often enough the the more serious academic stuff
0: because I, I know you blog a lot with Catholic moral theology how does that fit in for you career-wise scholar in terms of scholarship in terms of teaching
1: in patchwork I would say you know I mean I think sometimes you know it, it I mean, just as one random positive story with that, I mentioned, I, I actually did the piece that I mentioned before on Augustine and Mental Illness sure. as a blog post. Actually, May is Mental Health Month. This is sort of a thing. And so mm-hmm. last May, no, May of 2013 is when I wrote that. It's sort of just to get it out there. Right. right. But it actually started some conversations for me that really have turned into this this article that I'm talking about. Right. So, so sometimes something like that, right. A blog post is a great way to kind of throw out an idea. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things is there's, there's really, although there's a lot done on like disability and, and what have you like really trying to write on mental illness Mm -hmm. is, it's not done enough. Sure. So that this is one I keep getting told that this is one of the few things people find on this. Mm. A variety of people kind of emailed me like, thanks for that article. Because I haven't found much else. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to remedy that. Go But so but that that's one way it fits in. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well as we start wrapping up, I have some we like to end we have five questions, sort of rotating <laughs> questions. Is this the speed round?
1: <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> can be
0: <yeah>. <laughs> 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 to see kind of other sides of people. So first question, one of one of the other Mike Avery, who's one of the other interviewers for the podcast, loves this one. So in honor of Michael ask this, are you team coffee or team tea? Coffee, no question. No question. No tea at all?
1: I mean, occasionally. All if right. somebody offers me a cup of tea or there are certain times when cold and flu strikes and, and sure. tea does okay. feel like the right drink. Sure. But yeah, there's not much. But no one
0: wants medicine every day. so Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, all right, there, all right, there's all a
1: right. certain kind of, I, I will say I do have a, I will always have a love in my heart for high tea at okay. the, so- a friend of mine, when she, uh, Yana Bennett, actually, mm-hmm. fellow blogger at Catholic Moral when she graduated, which was before I did, we had this high tea at the Washington and Duke <laughs> Inn to <laughs> celebrate her defense of her dissertation and all that. And then we went back when I defended my dissertation. With, uh, right. and, and so I'll always have some love for tea, but there's no question. Yeah. Team coffee.
0: Are you like a pot of black every day, or are you.
1: No, I'm I'm a I'm a cream and splenda kind of girl. Okay. (laughs) But I pretty much drink it as long as as it's there.
0: Okay. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Question two Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Wow.
1: Wow. That's a tough one. (laughs) Patron saint? Do you have a patron-sinner category? <laughs> I don't uh, I don't, no, know we don't want to talk about that I don't about know that that we either. want that, theologically. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. i got to come up with something, right? What are you the patron saint of?
0: You know, honestly, a lot of people have said they want They would be the patron saint of, like, procrastinators or something. Yeah, and
1: I, I, I could fight
0: them for that. Maybe, yeah, but. I I think a lot of us feel that way. I don't know. Maybe dilettante, I think, is maybe who I, okay. I can best represent. Okay. I think One. sometimes... Have you ever seen Amadeus, movie Amadeus? Yeah. And at the end of that, at the end of Salieri's long story, <laughs> describes himself as this sort of patron saint of mediocrity. Right. And he, he seems to, as I remember it, feel this sort of resignation, but also relief at that. And the, the priest who's hearing his confession is just bothered and baffled by it. But... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I don't, I don't know. I I maybe uh, the patron saint of uh, sibling love, since I ah. uh, was, was talking about my brother so yeah. much. maybe oh, so. I, I can't go all the way to mental uh, illness. You know, we got St. Dymphna for that. Sure, so. all
0: right. but maybe that. All right. What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song?
1: Wow. Let's see. I. Okay. I might might get in trouble here, but I, I don't like the "I dance in the morning" one. <laughs> and 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 one reason in particular is that you know it's 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 all fine when you're like I dance in the morning with the stars well, and the sun, da da da. That's that's fine. You're dancing in the morning with the stars and the sun. But when you get to that verse about that's basically Good Friday, <laughs> and especially when people aren't thinking ahead about this and they continue to do it in the ridiculous sing-song. Mm-hmm. And you get the line about how it's it's hard to dance with the devil on your back. They whip me and they stripped me and they hung me high, left me there on the cross to die. I mean, that really is the the line. And
0: is it, does this song have hand gestures to it? Is it one of those? I
1: I don't know if it has hand gestures, but but I mean, how can you? I mean, how can you take that seriously? Yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> Anyway, I've I've found myself laughing through several <laughs> liturgies as, you know, we sing with joy about Jesus being whipped and stripped and left on a cross to die. That's a good pick. Yeah, thank you. What
0: word or phrase do you think you most overuse?
1: Your people can play this back and probably tell <laughs> me. Um, probably. Yeah. Um, that's that's a, that's bad a good one. one. Um, there I go again. Sometimes when I'm teaching my Catholic social thought class in particular, I get the sense that if I say dignity to the human person one more time, they <laughs> might kill me. <laughs> but I mean, how can you not? <laughs> right, right, right. Common good. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a few things that, yeah, that yeah. keep coming back to again and again.
0: I noticed one, one phrase he said, he's only said it a couple times, but it's one that I know I overuse a lot. And it's because a friend of mine points out to me, is uh, there's a way in which... I had a friend, uh, one of my mentors at BC was Fred Lawrence, and I, I learned it from him, I think, because everyone who TA'd for him, at some point, like, that was a phrase you would just hear them say over and over again, so I think that's the, the common thread. But I think it actually got to a point where Fred called me out on it. Wow. <laughs> I was like, all right, I got I to gotta tile this one down. I, I haven't, but I, it's in the back of my head. Um, I'll make a note of it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You didn't (laughs) overuse it, but when you you said it, it it's like, oh, I say that a lot. But
1: it it is a great. I'm thinking, so I'm gonna say this right. So there's a way in which. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's it's. I mean, I'm always I'm trying to make a distinction is where I'm going with it. But I think it's it's a better stall than um. It definitely is, but it is sometimes just a stall for me. Yeah, and then last question: what? Is a job or profession that, were you not a theologian, you not necessarily would have actually pursued, but you, you would have liked to, or you sometimes think would have been something, or maybe it is one you would have done, but yeah, what's, know, sort of, what's sort of your like alternate history? My
1: alternate uh, history, I, I do think there's a version of my life where I go, go into medicine. Mm-hmm. I think there's a version of my life where I go into law. Mm-hmm. And I... I, I I, I I'll I'll just stick with those two. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I they're both. I I think they can be helping professions, mm-hmm. which I I do think. Well, and I mean, I guess I should I should name that I could have been a teacher in another way than being a theologian. Sure. I mean, I think that that that, that that's possible. For yeah. To that there's a way in which that's a, that I did it. <laughs> <There> I, <laughs> see now see, you're see, attuned now, to it, right now. I'm, now I'm attuned <laughs> to it. But I think that I could have been a teacher in, in another way. I don't know exactly what, what yeah. that would have been. All right. Fair enough.
0: Well, thank you so much. This was really enriching for me. So I, I Great. Hope I, I
1: enjoyed it a lot as well. So awesome. Thank you.
0: The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.